if you ask the layman on the street, you know, what can one do about the energy transition and, and, and achieving at zero and becoming carbon neutral, the answer will probably be, well, to eat less meat and to fly less with airplanes. But the simple truth is, based, based on the facts that I've just described, is that net zero will remain a pipe dream if we do not address industrial heat. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. My name is Hans König. I lead Aurora's consulting business in our Berlin office, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Christian Thiel, CEO of EnergyNest. Hello. Welcome, Christian. Um, before before we go um, into the details and what, uh, uh, what we'll discuss today, let me briefly introduce our guest today. So as I said, Christian is CEO of uh, EnergyNest. Um, EnergyNest is, uh, is a high-temperature energy storage company, um, and Christian will uh, explain what they do and how that works in a second. He started his career at BMW, uh, where he uh, simultaneously completed an apprenticeship um, and a, a degree in, uh, in business at university. And he later added a PhD in economics and marketing, um, uh, focusing on designing sales structures in foreign markets, uh, which is something that presumably comes in quite useful in his, in his current role. After nine years at BMW, uh, he left uh, first to go into, inve into investment banking at UBS um, and then joined McKinsey, uh, the consulting firm. Um, after three years of that, um, he uh, he joined Senmion, um, uh, one, one of the major wind turbine manufacturers um, at the time as their vice president for business development and uh, marketing. Um, and after that, seven years ago, in 2014, he joined he joined EnergyNest. So quite a long and, uh, and 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 varied career in a number of sectors, but uh, including the energy sector. So it's it's really great to have you, Christian, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thanks very much for having me at the show, Hans. We like to start our conversations on a bit of a personal note, and uh, the thing that uh, stood out to me in 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 your uh, CV, as it were, is that uh, prior to studying, you were actually a paratrooper um, uh, and uh, in the German military, um, including a deployment to Kosovo. Um, could you tell us a bit about that time and uh, whether that in any way shaped the way you uh, you do things in business? Yeah, so those were the wild times back then. <laughs> and I joined the army, uh, uh, specifically the paratroopers after after high school. Um, I guess I felt I didn't feel ready yet for university um, or the most serious aspect of life. And I think our mission in uh, ex-Yugoslavia was to enforce the Dayton Agreement um, after the war, mm -hmm. which was ultimately preparing for the first democratic elections, um, providing food or rations to the people, um, and collecting some um, uh, so-called war criminals uh, and, and, and bringing them to, uh, to trial, basically the law, local law enforcement. Um, so overall, uh, you know, I thought it was fun, but it turned out to be a very serious mission. And what happens when you're in the army typically is you grow up a lot, hmm. um, a, a lot more than you would have uh, probably without. Um, uh, so, so it was a big big step uh, uh, for me in my, in my career, what I say. And why am I saying this? Because when you learn one thing at the armed forces, it's it's about leadership. 
and leadership doesn't just start when uh, when you're a general or so, right? So it starts basically as soon as you're responsible for a mission uh, of some people in your group um, uh, or even more. And the things that I have taken away um, is uh, the, the first one, maybe more metaphor, but always use your compass, right? In the army, it was a literal compass uh, to to um, not lose orientation when you in a, in an unfamiliar environment. And I think, you know, that probably applies more than ever today. Uh, it's not the literal compass anymore, but it's more like the gut compass. It's all about direction, right? Um, is where you had it, um, uh, is, is that in line with the mission that you have to achieve? Um, uh, so, so I think kind of like this calibration, if you're on the right track is always super important. And then what I took away also is teamwork, but teamwork, always starts a bit also with leadership, which is not a beauty contest, but it's more about engaging your team and getting all input. Um, and uh, more than input, also getting everyone involved in teamwork. Mm. And, and once you have people involved, it's about really um, determining direction and providing orientation on direction so that people really know what, where where they headed, where where we are headed as a group and what the achievement is. And um, I think that is something that I really internalized during during the time at, uh, at the army. And then last but not least, obviously, something that I find very important, especially in the business world, is um, when the going gets tough, you just have to bite your teeth and get through with it. Yeah. There are situations that are not never really comfortable and you can choose to complain and and uh, 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 whine about how difficult everything is or you can just bite your teeth <laughs> and just get get on with it and uh, you know uh, strive towards the light at the end of the tunnel. Hmm. Maybe one follow-up questions uh, question on that. How do you strike the balance between uh, checking the compass and uh, and biting the bullet? Because uh, uh, when something is tough, it might be because you're heading in the wrong direction, right? Uh, or, or, or it might be that okay, actually, you just have to double down and you have you have to keep going, and there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I can imagine that being quite uh, quite hard in both a military context and, of course, in a in, in a business context as well. Yeah, uh, I, I so I would assume there's different answers to this, but my answer is not to just trust your internal compass and isolation, but to always, you know, uh, check with the, uh, with the externals. Uh, that is basically, you know, um, uh, something like, you know, uh, reading the news on uh, watching your environment, uh, talking to your, to your team, talking to the leaders who are responsible for you. So for instance, investors or, or uh, stakeholders such as customers, etc., And then just reflecting and, um, really finding out what preferences shapes up. And, you know, even there, if there's many, many obstacles, if you're completely determined and if others are also determined, it's very easy to, to align on direction. Um, so I would say it's, it's, it's not a simple recipe. It has to lot, a lot to do with reflection and evaluation and this in a constant loop. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good point. Thank you. Sometimes, and, and, and sometimes it's not just uh, biting the bullet, but also dodging a bullet or two. <laughs> that's, that's, that's also true, definitely. Uh, so af after the military, you, uh, you spent uh, almost 10 years at BMW before then moving on to, uh, on to UBS and McKinsey. What, what made you move away from industry? Yeah, so... Um, first of all, I think I was attracted to the industry because um, obviously you you know um, 
industry comes up with great products and uh, uh, also strong brands, etc. I decided for myself after uh, you know an overall, let's say, ten years during university, during which I had been a full-time employee, so to say, already, and then you know before that apprenticeship, and then my first real job for several years, that um, the culture was too stiff for me. Yeah, I would say this is the simple answer or the headline. And I always had the impression in the places where I worked uh, in the industry that um, you have great colleagues, but it's not always a place where are you where you are valued for out of the box thinking or ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a lot of time the feedback that I got is basically, oh, you have to fall in line and you have to be, you know, don't care about what's left or right, etc. And also, there was always a sentiment that you had to be extremely thankful for having this job uh, instead of really talking about, I don't know, contributions or ideas or, 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 or just what moves you as a human being. So, so I decided that was after a while, this is simply nothing for me. Um, again, this is very personal. Um, and then, yeah, I, I just chose to pursue a different path. Yeah, being being very appreciative for the learnings though I have made during this time. Okay, and why then? Uh, why then investment banking and uh, and uh, strategy consulting? Is this uh, was that the largest possible contrast you could imagine to uh, to the structures to the structures in industry? It was probably um, driven out of curiosity to um, to broaden the horizon. So just not to know about one company in particular uh, down to level 23, but more, okay, what's happening in the world? And by world, I mean, obviously different geographies, but also different sectors. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was really driven out of curiosity and, and um, uh, it, it felt good to kind of like, you know, just experience um, <laughs> that life is not just about automobiles uh, or production processes and um, uh, brand marketing, but that there's many different aspects to it. Yeah, I'm simplifying now, but mm. I think um, uh, probably it suited my my profile just to want, wanting to broaden experiences. No, and typically in consulting, uh, you work on on different projects, also investment banking, you work on different transactions. So it's a, um, those are good platforms just to get out there and uh, gain some valuable experiences. Uh, absolutely. And then finally, on your, on your career, how did you then get involved in Energy Nest and uh, how did you become the CEO? Um, I think a lot of things added up, um, uh, you know, having industrial experience and then working in different countries and then in the energy segment slash renewable segment. Um, you become aware of the direction of travel with regards to, for instance, energy transition and what's missing. And that was and still is storage for a large part. Um, and you know, then as it is in life, there's always opportunity that presents itself. And that was Energy Nest. And Energy Nest happened to look for a new CEO at the time, um, three years after it was founded. Um, and and I just took the chances and um, turned out to stick for the company for more than seven years now. Yeah, I mean, which is, which is a long time in the energy world, especially looking at. Yeah. And, and is... you know, it, yeah, exactly. And it doesn't feel like it because it's, it's, it's not like you're coming to work every morning. It's more like um, it's, it's, you know, going from milestone to milestone. And we started uh, with an 
idea and that of our founder. And then the next step was to form partnerships and then build a pilot, which we did in, in Mustar City in Abu Dhabi, a technology pilot, then operating this and seeing if the technology really works. And then based on the success of the pilot, starting commercial evaluations, thinking about segmentation and you know which kind of customers we could approach. And what skills it needs with the team and yada, 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 yada. And uh, you know, there we are now with uh, three projects uh, under execution at the moment. Um, just posted on LinkedIn this morning, a picture from our first Tower of Power, so to say. Um, and um, uh, working off a, a quite significant project pipeline. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's you, you, you develop along the transformation of the company, which I personally find incredibly exciting. Hmm. You're in a space of growth and you see not only yourself develop, but also colleagues you started out with or you hired and, you know, people are just developing and you do new things and want to do more and determine what resources are necessary to get there. And, and uh, progress is nice. I think this is what uh, makes the seven years fly by like nothing. Hmm. Absolutely. And so, I mean, you already uh, you already told us a little bit about uh, about what you're up to at the moment. But um, in order to not get ahead of ourselves, um, can you explain to us how the Energy Nest technology works and uh, where you see its role in the energy transition? Yeah, I think it's important to understand that what we do at Energy Nest, first of all, is um, addressing the single uh, the single biggest lever of decarbonization, which is industrial heat. Um, we have a couple of applications. Um, I would say the most relevant include, for instance, um, waste heat recovery via energy storage or electrifying heat directly. So renewable green electricity converted into green heat um, for industrial steam grids. Or, for instance, also flexibilization of uh, power plants, so zero emission power plants. And um, it's also important to understand that, you know, what we do has been estimated by Mission Innovation, which is a, I think it's a, it's a, it's a body or organization formed by all the countries um, that uh, signed the Paris 2015 agreement plus the EU. So, so our technology impact has been estimated to save 100 million tons CO2 per year or more, yeah? Just to get an understanding of, of what it does. I mean, in simple word on the technology, if I may add, just add to this is, we have a solid state energy storage technology, which comes in standardized and modular con container sized um, uh, uh, modules. Yeah? You may borrow this term again. Uh, uh, size is a 20-foot shipping container, and, and it's basically a massive heat exchanger with the capacity to store heat. So heat gets in, is stored very effectively and efficiently and on a low-cost basis, and then um, uh, freely dispatchable again. And the main, let's say, ingredients of our thermal battery technology are basically steel and uh, high-performance uh, concrete. Mm. Where I have to mention that the majority of the concrete is not cement, um, so, but it's quartzite. So 75% roundabout is, is quartzite. So it's, 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 it's quite um, geographically abundant materials that we are using. And also, therefore, it's, it's highly recyclable. Mm. 
And um, I think what we want to strive to um, with this kind of technology is to provide not just energy storage, but more move into a space for a clean heat as a service. Yeah, just to give it a, a headline business-wise already. Where we see our role in the energy transition is, is simple and just adding on to, to the significance and why this matters. I mean, many people are not aware that 30% of the global energy demand is driven by the industrial sector. And um, the majority of this industrial heat is generated by fossil fuels. So 90% at least, and that's actually quite scary. Yeah, And it shows you why we have to transition industrial heat uh, completely and define also a new target state. So it's two main objectives that we have to achieve. Um, and uh, in that context also, uh, you know, if you, if, you, if you ask the layman on the street, you know, what can you do about, or what, what can one do about the energy transition and, and, and achieving at zero and becoming carbon neutral, the answer will probably be, um, well, to eat less meat and to fly less with airplanes. But the simple truth is based, based on the facts that I've just described is that um, net zero will remain a pipe dream if we do not address industrial heat. And we do this by A, flexibilizing heat that is in systems already in industrial systems. So basically you have a byproduct waste heat, which is not being utilized. We offer a way of utilizing this waste heat and uh, converting um, this byproduct um, into a primary energy source. Uh, so for instance, for, for certain processes requiring steam or even electricity. And what we also do is we electrify heat as already mentioned for industrial customers. So instead of, uh, and, and let me just talk in, in pictures, which is probably easier to comprehend. Um, uh, it, instead of, uh, let's say burning natural gas to produce the much needed industrial steam. Um, we basically help customers electrifying green electricity and electricity is not always green and it's not always cheap. So we take off, we shave these, these, these supply peaks basically off, store them in the thermal battery and make it then accessible on demand for these customers uh, in order to utilize green electricity for, for heat uh, potential. And we think that this heat storage sector slash industrial sector slash power plant flexibilization um, is a clean tech space with huge potential uh, for growth. And, you know, maybe my last word of um, uh, towards where our role is in the, in the energy transition is, um, you know, everyone, everyone knows, knows Netflix as the streaming platform. Um, and, uh, you know, you could refer to basically uh, Netflix as the energy nest of entertainment. So we want to be, uh, in other words, the Netflix for industrial heat, uh, a really a streaming platform for industrial heat on demand um, with a clear customer value. Um, um, uh, uh, also, uh, let's say, enabling the customer not to find extreme amounts of capital into these solutions. But I guess we come to the sums. Mm. Yeah, I've I, I been mean, very happy to, to actually dig a bit deeper here because uh, I really like the picture of a of a Netflix for for industrial heat, and I guess that's part of part of the process of you turning into um, into a turnkey solutions provider and not just a, and not just a technology company. Um, can you tell us a little bit a, a bit about why you expanded into that um, in, in, into that very operational business as well? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And and the answer is uh, uh, simply based on, on our learnings. Um, you know, with, with our solution, we do not address uh, households uh, um, or let's say uh, uh, individual, uh, let's say, and, and customers. We address, address the industrial sectors so or industrial companies with production plants, um, with with uh, manufacturing units uh, and power plants. And we want to make decarbonization for them as easy as possible. We have realized uh, in earlier stages uh, uh, when, when talking about projects, and that was basically before our recent funding, that capital is a constraint uh, for many companies, uh, despite the you know, the many, many, let's say, um, uh, opportunities to be part of EU recovery funds, uh, et cetera, uh, based on, on the COVID situation and, and economical support for, for companies. But there's a global trend that companies are focusing their core business on their core products. Mm -hmm. And that in many cases is not energy infrastructure. Yeah, energy infrastructure is driven by large utilities and transmission companies, etc. So we came in a situation where we, you know, developed a project with a customer, and the customer said, you know, it's really great, but I have a budget for next year already allocated for, let's say, a, uh, upgrading our SAP system. And for the year after, we can talk, but there's already ideas for uh, improving uh, the quality of our core products, et cetera. So to cut a long story short, we ran into situations where the contribution of our project was highly valued, mm -hmm. but the customer could not really execute on it due to financial bottlenecks. And this is what we're addressing with our fully financed turnkey solutions, is to ultimately enable customers to go for our solutions to not having to pay for the hardware or, or project capex for it, and um, to participate from or uh, in energy savings from day one. So ultimately, our solution basically would be built. We finance it, and there's a certain amount of of savings. Let's say there's um, uh, one euro a year that you can save. Then we have a discussion with a customer about how many cents of this euro he can earn. Uh, uh, straight away and how many cents of the euro basically go to pay down the project because we have built the project. So it completely changes the picture of these discussions and CFOs love this. Yeah, because um, uh, it, it's a big enabler for them to implement such projects, um, to decarbonize their operations um, and to keep the financial flexibility for the core, core products that they have or the core activities. And as I said, in many cases, this is not energy infrastructure, and this is exactly where our new offering comes into play. Really interesting, really interesting. Um, there's and and um, there's there's clearly a big opportunity uh, there in terms of uh, decarbonizing uh, industrial heat. Um, um, however, I think it's also fair to say that you're not the only company active in this space, um, but uh, that you do have um, uh, you do have uh, I don't know if you call them competitors, but there's uh, there's companies developing. Um, uh, steel storage and molten salt, and a couple of uh, other different uh, different st storage media as well. Yeah. And besides the uh, the contracting business model, which you which you described, how do you how do you differentiate yourselves uh, from them? 
Yeah, I have to say, I um, it's very confidence inspiring for us that we do have uh, peers or competitors. Let's let's refer uh, to those players as peers for now, because I mean I, I cannot um, repeat this enough. I mean, you know, if you take I, I spoke about global energy demand by industry, but if you take um, the European market alone and the emission level from from the industry in Europe. The European industry um, emits 20% of Europe's greenhouse gases, 20%, so one fifth. That is more than you know emissions from all planes and cars combined. Yeah, just in terms of perspective. Yeah. And 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 you know with, <laughs> with with some clever hardware and operations, you can significantly change that. And this is really why I'm 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 so happy to see an increased momentum also from 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 other players on this. I think when it comes down to the questions to the question what differentiates Energy Nest uh, from its peers, I think we are at least for now the only ones in the space addressing the heat market with a with a market ready product. Um, I think other players are in trial stages, which are super important in order to bring your product to market. We have currently three projects in execution. So that means we, we, we are doing work at site. And, um, you know, our customers um, are, are great customers. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's Yara. Many people don't know Yara, but it's the largest fertilizer producer in the world. So a big chemical company. It's the Italian energy company, ENI. And we just recently signed a contract and started executing the project with, uh, for, for a project with Avery Dennison, um, a, a large global manufacturing uh, a company for, for, for packaging uh, materials. Um, so it's a project in executions. Um, I, I would say then, you know, following, following these uh, milestones, uh, 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 I just have to mention our pipeline, which is focusing on industrial projects, but also on leapfrog projects. So projects that are in the magnitude of, um, let's say, uh, uh, several dozen up to hundreds of our modules. Um, uh, so really big, big, large scale projects. And, um, uh, you know, for both, we also have uh, uh, formed partnerships, uh, for instance, with uh, AC boilers in Italy, or on a, on a more European level, also with uh, Siemens Energy. Um, in order to develop joint solutions for industrial customers and their thermal storage needs. Um, so, so I think that that probably the commercialization aspect mm -hmm. of Energy Nest and, and the current market traction, um, which is a function of customer demand and, 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 and really getting operational into the business and, and de delivering uh, uh, milestones um, is something really that differentiates us in next year. We'll have those three projects in operation and we'll be working on, on many, many Many more projects, and just just last week, uh, I was in Spain um, at an industrial customer to to discuss one of the possible next projects that we're working on. Okay, okay. So really, the the, the degree of commercialization um, and how far you are along uh, that process um, as a as a key different differentiator from others in the space. Um, so let's let's follow up on that. And um, I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about what you learned in executing these first uh, these first projects where are there any things that um kind of that you will do very differently in the fourth projects than you did uh, in the fourth project than you did them in the, in, in the in the first three based on based on experience you made yeah um 
I, th I think we learned that we, we still have to lower the barriers for decarbonization. Um, and I think that has several angles. Uh, one of them certainly is to offer uh, financed uh, uh, projects. So not only to sell your hardware, but to sell you know, the engineering around it, the, the financing around it, and just make adoption for the customer as easy as possible. Then one thing we learned is that um, we still have to educate a lot of customers uh, about the possibility of thermal storage. So there's a complete information gap on the heat market. And I'm just referring to the numbers that I threw you away earlier, Hans, about you know, one third of global energy demand and 20% of European greenhouse gas emissions. Um, Many, many don't know this also because the media is, is portraying, let's say, a different angle. It's still a lot about EVs and charging infrastructure and photovoltaic on the roof, which is all important and good, but it's, it won't get us to, to the climate targets, right? Um, uh, especially now after COP26, uh, seeing that we look at a, a coal phase down and not a coal phase out. I mean, it's important to address the big levers. Um, and then I think a very operational learning, what we've also have done is, you know, probably <laughs> projects always take a bit more time than you anticipate in your planning, which is just, you know, reality than catching up with, you know, uh, uh, let's say uh, uh, companies going uh, through committees for decision or the weather not allowing for construction start and stuff like this. So, so I would say these are the, probably the key learnings that, that we have made from the first projects. In terms of taking forward the business and uh, and growing it over the next couple of um, years, is there is there a merit order of use cases, um, or to, to put it to put it in a different way, um, are there are there any no brainers you see um, um, uh, which should be addressed in the short term, and um, are there then is there then a long list of uh, very interesting but potentially more challenging use cases? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean. First of all, I have to say that I'm really happy to see that, you know, the three projects that we have currently in our execution already ex uh, address different applications or segments. Uh, waste heat recovery, um, solar thermal for industrial production or steam balancing for, for Yara. So, so it's good uh, uh, that, you know, some of the segments that we, that we target actually gain traction. I think a definite no-brainer um, as you put it, is waste heat recovery with energy storage. So let's say industrial company that has any sort of kiln or oven or smelter or uh, doesn't have to be gas fired, can also be electricity powered like electric arc furnaces, et cetera. With these, uh, th th you know, th those are energy sources, especially in terms of waste heat. To tap into this waste heat, recover this waste heat, store it, and then make it accessible downstream for different process steps to, for instance, replace natural gas boilers, that's an absolute no-brainer. And what kind, of, what kind of temperature level do you need for that, just out of interest? The, well, the temperature can be up to what it is. We would typically uh, tap into sources that are, um, I would say, at least 100, at least 180 mm -hmm. degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. Um, um, but then there's no limit. It can be, you know, also 1200 degrees or so. We would, we would dilute the heat in so far that what enters the storage is probably around max 430 degrees Celsius. Okay. And then store this 
temperature. And this is typically what you need for high quality steam provision or preheating or even electricity generation for let's say uh, on-site uh, 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 demand, yeah. So, so that is an absolute uh, uh, no-brainer also simply because utilizing waste heat just saves you a massive energy bill, especially with today's gas prices. Uh, I mean, uh, such applications are strongly in the money. Yeah. Um, I think second, um, you know, any sort of solar thermal application that we see, um, you know, and, and you, you know, catching the sun during the day and uh, making it available in terms of its energy for the night is a, you know, it's a very well-used uh, metaphor for this, but uh, I was quite surprised about the project that we just um, uh, assigned and are now executing for Avery Dennison. It's ultimately a project in Belgium where solar collectors uh, provide industrial heat mm -hmm. um, to the customer. And, uh, uh, you know, the, and this is in Belgium. So it's not, we're not yes. talking MENA region or South of Spain, right? We talk about Central Europe and, uh, I, you know, until recently, I, I wasn't aware this is possible, but it is, technology is really advancing. And, you know, this, this, the, the, the solar collector themselves during the day are able to, I think, replace almost the entire natural gas uh, consumption of the customer and with our thermal battery, um, uh, you know, th this will amount to 70% of the nighttime gas demand. So it's, it's big impact. Yeah. If you just put this into perspective, what we can do on big project level and just imagine this in a scaled out version and just, uh, again, you know, one third of the global energy for industry and, and just making this energy uh, recycled or from, from uh, tapping into renewable sources. I mean, this is the answer for the industrial sector really. And so this is also a new, uh, really a, a rather low-hanging fruit to combine solar thermal generation with, with storage. And then there is the um, electrification of industrial heat. So for instance, flexible charging from the grid. You take green renewable electricity when it's available, store it, and then make it accessible. And this can all be customized to the customer, whatever the needs are uh, uh, for, for green steam production, for instance. This is less of a technical challenge because the, the technology is well understood. Um, this is more of a, let's say, regulatory challenge um, because of levies and, mm -hmm. and surcharges. So, 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 so the storage today, for instance, in Germany is still treated like an end consumer, yeah? we, we, which it should be clearly not. So that makes it a bit more difficult, the electrification of industrial heat from a from a regulatory point of view, but technically it's not a challenge. And, and when I say technically it's not a challenge, I, I should say also that for our projects that are integrated with industrial plants, it's our storage, but then um, depending on the application, it's always in conjunction with off the shelf um, industry equipment like uh, heat exchangers, steam generators, uh, small turbines, you know, foundations, piping. I mean, none of this is new except for the thermal battery. And the thermal battery is not not so new, also because you know it's uh, it's proven we are we, we we are executing projects for the for the first customer. So it's basically stuff that we can realize today. We don't have to wait for the next leap of innovation for another ten years. Yeah. Um, so now it's about moving the regulatory work into the direction to enable the technologies. Uh, to function across all possible applications to the benefit uh, 
not only of the customers, but society at a large. Yeah. You mentioned the regulator, regulatory work. Um, what what is it that uh, that you need uh, from the from from policy or regulation to, um, uh, to 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 make more projects fly? Is it is it subsidies? Is it is it higher carbon prices? And uh, do, 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 do you have any suggestions there? Yeah. So um, I think. For instance, you, you have to differentiate. So for instance, for waste heat recovery, as I mentioned, I mean, with, uh, with current gas prices and carbon at about 60 euro, um, th this is largely in the money already uh, without mm -hmm. any sort of subsidies. And I think, you know, the more, the more expensive uh, carbon gets, uh, uh, the, the more interesting for, for, For our type of applications, yeah, because the, the the economical return will just be much more attractive. I think for for making decarbonization more easy for customers to to adopt, um, policies need to be adjusted, and politics specifically need to um, introduce a very simple kind of system. Now, I'm not a policy expert, I have to say, but. There needs to be somewhat of a balance between penalties for, you know, uh, greenhouse gas emitting uh, processes, and at the same time, incentives for companies who implement technologies or innovation to mitigate this greenhouse gas emission. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so that it needs to be more a, 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 a balance. And um, as I said, for instance, you know, in, in taking the, the German example again, um, if energy storage is still treated as, you know, the ultimate energy consumer with all the taxes and levies, this obviously doesn't make electrification super attractive from a business case from the get-go. So, so I think someone really has, has to think about um, about, about some sort of carrot and a stick scenario in order to really move away from these high emission levels for the industry and 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 and, and really transition transition help the sector transitioning and to define a new uh, target end state because we we also see that a lot of customers are waiting um, there's a strong insecurity about you know what legislation will be yet uh, will be next and and there's a lack of orientation and you know if 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 if, if you if you if you have lost orientation or a bit confused or unsure. You simply do not dare to take bold next steps. And I think that clarity needs to be provided. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that at current gas prices and carbon prices, you're already competitive. But of course, on the on the gas markets, uh, we're seeing a pretty unusual situation at the at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, Do you have do you have a rough estimate of what kind of carbon price you would need if uh, if natural gas goes down to say I don't know 20 to euros per megawatt hour again? Yeah, I think um, uh, I think uh, around 80 probably is a level to say that CO 2 is so attractive that these solutions mm. um, uh, carry themselves at such gas prices. Oh. Uh, but then again, you are. <laughs> Mind you that even if prices go down again to that level, you know um, uh, that, that that then new current gas price level is not a hedge for the future. So no. that's also a strategic element to it, right? So so so, yeah. I think you know sixty uh, sixty with current gas prices is, uh, is is already highly attractive. Eighty um, with lower gas price prices is is more attractive. And then obviously our business model 
is thriving on increasing carbon prices because it simply provides customers uh, and partners with a technology hedge against uh, increasing natural gas prices. And, and our mission is clearly about replacing natural gas for industrial customers. I mean, we want to help uh, uh, the industry and, and our customers to, to first transition and then to define, you know, and implement a technology setup that is fit for the future and mm -hmm. ideally runs without gas. Great stuff. Final final question on your on, on, on your business models and on, on your positioning. Um, I would like to open the or widen the scope a little bit uh, in terms of the competition because right now clearly the main the main source of competition is natural gas. In the longer term, uh, a lot of the debate about um, uh, high temperature heat and industrial processes um, is around is around hydrogen versus electrification. And uh, by the sounds of it, you are more on the electrification side here. But can you tell us a little bit how you um, how you position yourselves there and, and how and whether you view hydrogen as a as a competitor in the processes which you which you want to work on? Um, yeah, so you really opened the can of worms there, Hans. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I, um, I also have to say I'm 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 not a hydrogen expert, but uh, you 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 do hear the noise, and I think what what hydrogen and the hydrogen lobby is doing is is great public work. Um, I think the danger of what is being done is that uh, you know people might perceive that hydrogen is the answer to everything, which in our view it is clearly not. Um, so. If I, for instance, I mean, wasted recovery is wasted recovery and you should always enhance energy efficiency in a plant when you can. And I think that, you know, um, this is not in competition with, with hydrogen by any way. Um, but um, if we talk, for instance, about the electrification of the industry, I think this is also what you had in mind, right? Um, yeah. um, uh, you, you could argue, yeah, but um, you, from this renewable electricity, one could just produce hydrogen. And, 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 and that is true. And what we see also with customers, for instance, that we work with together, Yara is a big player in hydrogen and green ammonia production, is mm -hmm. that there are certain sweet spots for hydrogen application. And there's a concept that I found quite useful to look at, which is the hydrogen ladder, so to say, mm -hmm. which describes applications where hydrogen is simply unavoidable, Yeah, because this is really what will help uh, 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 the energy transition and the future energy target state. And there are simply applications where hydrogen is uncompetitive. And this also needs to be faced, right? And I think the strong points of hydrogen is in the fertilizer production or methanol production or powering the steel industry, at least uh, you know, in Europe, if we live in, in green steel, et cetera. Um, so, or, or shipping um, um, uh, can be an example. So, so there's the dedicated um, applications. When we look to what we do, for instance, the, the electrification of, of the industry, where you would simply uh, in, install a storage system at site with a customer, let's take a chemical plant that needs steam and the steam grids, we would um, we would tap into the, the steam grids for providing the steam, and, and this steam would be uh, generated from heat from our storage, and that heat would be generated from uh, green electricity when it's available and cheap. Hmm. So that's a benefit. And such a system, without going into many details, has an overall efficiency. So basically, green electricity to green heat from uh, of over ninety percent. If you were, you know, if if you if you generate hydrogen from from green electricity, I mean, the efficiency efficiency level is six is sixty percent. 
probably around about. I mean, and this is if you look at ARENA numbers. So, mm. so it's, it's not my numbers. So there's applications um, where simply our storage sticks out in terms of overall efficiency gains. Plus, it's a much more, let's say, uh, uh, simple and therefore low-cost systems. So, so I think the, the, the there is not necessarily a a ultimate competition for selected applications when it comes to thermal energy storage. I think hydrogen and thermal storage are both part of the energy transition and the future state. And I mean, let's face it, um, everyone who's informed about, you know, the current energy challenges knows that a multitude of technologies is needed. There's not just one answer, right? And I think what we currently see is probably that there's an expectation raised that hydrogen is the answer to all. And, and, and I think that is wrong, right? But hydrogen certainly has its strong point and, and so do we. And, and, and again, our waste heat recovery solutions, flexibilization of, of uh, zero emission power plants and electrification of industries, I think are clearly energy nest strong points where, where we think we can deliver a massive contribution for the energy transition and for its customers. Great stuff. Thank you very much. And before we come to a close, um, we uh, have a tradition on this podcast of, uh, of putting a couple of overrated and underrated questions to our and uh, to, to our guests the the idea here is that uh, um, you answer perhaps in a in a word or perhaps a sentence but not 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 much more than that uh, to, to really get people to uh, yeah take a position on a on, on a couple of concepts and ideas and the first i would like to put to you is um, um, uh, the idea of starting your career at a large corporate overrated or underrated Uh, probably overrated. Okay. Um, the second one is uh, the role of hydrogen in the energy transition. We already talked about it a little bit. Yeah, I think uh, overrated and hydrogen is crucial, but it's not the only solution and certainly not for everything. No. And the third one, uh, the contribution of the COP summits uh, to, to decarbonization. I would have said initially... Uh, Overrated, but probably I would say, well, I would answer your question now with underrated, because I think um, despite some perhaps disappointing results, it's important to simply raise awareness and confront policymakers with such, with, with such event in order to just simply keep the game moving. Otherwise, we would just be stalling. No. And uh, just for for for, uh, for the sake of our listeners, we're recording this um, uh, um, a couple of days after the uh, after COP in Glasgow uh, closed. So we had the benefit of uh, looking at what uh, what actually happened. Uh, final question, um, and I guess this kind of this is a good one to conclude our entire uh, conversation today. Um, the ease with which heat can be decarbonized, overrated or underrated? This is completely underrated. And it's probably less of a question of uh, uh, you know ease or doing it. It's probably more a question of awareness. Mm. So, and on that note, um, Hans, I'm I'm very happy about you know the chances that you guys provide for speaking at your podcast and you know just helping to educate also the energy world on in our case the topic of industrial heat. And um, thank you very much for 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 having me today and for the opportunity to speak. No, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, yes, I hope we uh, we managed to convince a couple of our listeners today that uh, that that this incredible challenge of uh, addressing the emissions coming from the from the heat sector 
is actually uh, a bit more manageable than uh, than one, uh, one one would have thought. So, thank you very much, Christian, for joining us. Uh, really interesting, interesting discussion, and um, uh, looking forward to catching up soon. Thank you, Hans. That was Hans Koenig, Head of Commission Projects for Central Europe at Aurora, speaking to Christian Thiel, CEO of EnergyNest. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.